Gateway, good to be here with you in this, our second week of this vision series as it is. I'm so grateful that Christy kind of framed this whole teaching around what does it mean for us to be in Des Moines as it is in heaven. And this week we turn to this first reality presence. Uh, what is it for us to be a community of Jesus uh, pursuing the presence of God? And so if you will, just join me uh, in a quick word of prayer, and then we'll uh, dive right in. So Father, we thank you that you are the one who is at work. Uh, we, we thank you that even now, uh, even if we don't feel it or we don't see it, that you are the one who's drawing us to yourself. You bear witness to us in your scriptures that when you're lifted up, that you will draw all people to yourself. And so we just ask through your living word and the power of your spirit that you would do so even this day. Amen. So the year is 2010, and I am midway through uh, my undergraduate studies. I'm living, quote unquote, the college life, which in my scenario as a college athlete at a Big Ten university meant that I am partying far too much, sleeping far too little, and ironically exercising a lot. So it's kind of a weird season of life. And then in the midst of all of that, with a series of introductions to Jesus, uh, by, by way of a sports ministry on campus and a couple guys on my team, uh, I was asked, so do you want to, quote, do this Jesus thing? And my response shifted the bulk of my life, of my college life thereafter. You see, I, I really had not the faintest idea of what it meant to actually follow Jesus. So when I said, yeah, let's do it, like, let's do this Jesus thing, I didn't think, like, I didn't know what I was signing up for, I guess. And so I just looked around me and I adapted my behavior to the way that the Christians behaved around me. So I started going to church. I uh, attended all the groups, like, all of the groups. And then when you're um, like zealous and you're young and you're in campus ministry stuff, they start giving you responsibility even when you're like immature. It, one of those uh, fatal flaws of being zealous, I suppose. But there I was like attending groups, leading groups, reading my Bible, which that was really strange. You know, you have like talking snakes on uh, the first few pages. So there's that for you. And, and there I was in the midst of all of this new stuff. And basically I had gotten gotten rid of all of the bad stuff and taken in all of the good stuff to follow Jesus. You, you could say this was behavior modification for Jesus. And in the midst of all that, if you were to look just beneath the surface of my zeal, in the substrata of my life, you would find like the same disordered desires lurking there beneath the surface just swishing about, popping up from time to time. And you know how you only know what you know when you know it, you know? I only knew about following Jesus from other college students, which in uh, most of the time was this beautiful thing. And the people I, were, I was looking to to follow Jesus were just as immature as I was in many ways. And that's not a slam against college students. If you're a college student following Jesus and call Gateway Home, like praise Jesus, like bring your friends. And, and there's this idea, the Apostle Paul talks about growing up into Christ. He has this hope for these churches that he's seeing being birthed into this Jesus movement that they would go from being infants to mature, 
fully formed people in Jesus. And so there I was, an infant, so to speak, looking to other infants and maybe adolescents about what does it mean to follow Jesus. Then in the midst of this like Christian assimilation process, it's kind of like a busy season of uh, churchianity in my life. A, a beautiful one for sure. I'm not like trying to, to knock it. It was a, a glorious season. And at one of these many groups in this local church I had gotten plugged into, uh, I, I got connected to a men's ministry. And it was there that I encountered something new. I encountered a life that had been formed by, from the inside out by Jesus. And so to, to paint the picture, I am the youngest guy in the room by 20 years of age. And I'm sitting at one of these round discussion tables in a room with like pastel colored walls. And then the oldest person who would participate in this comes and sits down next to me, a man named Ivan. He's got to be at this point, late seventies, early eighties. And at an earlier point in Ivan's life, he was a pastor in the deaf community. And, um, you know, when people would read the Bible in the class, it, maybe you'd be going through a lesson or some sort of curriculum, and there, like, under his breath, week after week, when the scriptures would be read, he would be um, saying the same passage, but it would sound a little different. It's because he had, like, memorized a lot of the Bible in the King James Version. So all of a sudden, I'm seeing this, and it, that was odd, because I didn't know people had memorized the Bible like that. And and then it, it got even stranger still because Ivan, he, he would readily admit his faults, that he was struggling to still follow Jesus at this point in his life. He would ask for forgiveness quickly. He would give forgiveness just as quickly and he would pray in earnest. And it was like he had this genuine expectation for God to show up. In all of this, I saw something that I had yet to see. I saw a life deeply formed by Jesus. And, you know, the only old people I knew at that point in my life were rather gruff. And so Ivan was like, had this buoyant spirit to him. And it was beautiful. And the language that the Bible uses to describe people like Ivan is these are the type of people who seek God's face. And if you, if you grew up in or around the church, then that language is far too familiar. Maybe it just kind of slides right off. But if you didn't, so basically to everyone else, that is a weird way to talk, is it not? Like, we don't seek one another's face. You don't go and like seek your friend's face. Maybe you FaceTime them, but that's the closest and even that doesn't quite get at what the Bible is talking about when it says to seek God's face. Nevertheless, this is language straight out of the library of scripture. It's littered all over the place. And one such place is Psalm 24. And so if you have your Bibles with you, you can flip or tap your way on over to Psalm 24. And we're going to read through the straight thing, uh, straight through the thing and, and work our way back through it line by line. Uh, but maybe this is your first time in the Psalms or, or your first time in a long time. And you may have heard the Psalms called the Psalter. It is a collection of Hebrew poetry. And in most instances, the Psalms are written as corporate worships. You could think about it as a hymnal even, or, um, you know, it's like a drop-down menu for 
lyrics to songs and stuff like that. No, like this would be put to a to rhythm and cadence and song and people would sing these as they come in and out of the holy city Jerusalem to worship as they're journeying, as they're in their homes. It was the voice of the people in all of life. And their languishing and their frustration and their joy, the Psalms gave expression to the people of Israel and still to this day to the people of God. And so without further ado, Psalm 24. A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. There's our phrase, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. And you see this poem, Psalm 24, it hinges right there in the middle in verse 6 on these words. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. And this is ultimately where I want us to conclude our time is on this phrase, to seek your face, the God of Jacob. But first, to get our arms around this expression that feels really foreign. We need a couple of things in hand. Uh, we need some theology and we need some history. And so we'll attend to the history first and then we'll get to the theology. So for the historical, we're actually going to stay in the scriptures. We're going to uh, turn a little bit further back to uh, 2 Samuel 6. And it's often helpful for me to think about the Bible as a story uh, and, and more a story within stories. So you could even think about the Bible as a library of scripture. And in this library of scripture, there is this collective witness that bears witness or or expresses God's faithfulness in all of these ways. So you have poetry that we just read. You have prose and narrative. There's even some genres that we don't have in play today, like apocalyptic literature. That's like the book of Daniel in the Hebrew Bible, or we have it in the New Testament as well in uh, Revelation. All together, these different genres and stories, they weave a tapestry of God's faithfulness. And Samuel is a historical narrative that helps to tell a part of that story, a part of God's faithfulness. And so a brief intro before we dive into 2 Samuel 6. Uh, Israel is at a low point in her history. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which is also called the Ark of God, it is this essentially a box that is ornate and beautiful, has these spiritual creatures on these, these the cherubim, or, or which, um, by the way, cherubim, not plump little babies with wings. Um, and by the way, by the way, um, no winged angels in the Bible. So send me some emails about that. Um, this is like, for whatever reason, like a pet peeve in kids' books. 
Angels don't have wings. There we go. So let that one distract you. Come back with me. <laughs> so the the Ark of God and the Ark of the Covenant. This would be where God's personal presence would rest. And this place where God's presence rested was lost in battle with the Philistines. Do you remember David, Goliath, that whole thing, the Philistine? Yeah, uh, the Ark of God was lost in battle. And to us, this doesn't really seem like a big deal. After all, Psalm 24, we just read that the whole earth is the Lord's. So why does it matter that a fancy box is taken to another land? Well, uh, if you recall the stories that come earlier in Israel's history, God's declaration to the people of Israel is that they would be his, that is his chosen portion, and he would be theirs. And this, in this time and place, it was thought that your deity was a localized presence. And so a way to shame people in war was to take the idols or the figures that represent their gods to the people and take them back and set them up to, to basically say, we've conquered your gods. And so that expression has taken place when the Philistines take the ark. And so it does matter because now this, uh, like, this moment where God's declaration that his presence would be among his people in a particular way is no longer there. It's not among them. So his presence that rested on the ark is no longer there. That holy place where heaven and earth would overlap in their mind's eye, that, that God's very personal presence, like God's space would invade human space and they could meet with God in the holy of holies. That is no longer accessible. And when we come to 2 Samuel 6, David is now king and his first act is to bring back the ark to the people, to bring the ark to the land and thereby bring the presence of God, the reign and the rule of God to bring heaven to the people of God. So pick up in verse 1. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Baalah and Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim of the Ark. So this is what we were just talking about. This is where God would reign and rule over all of the heavens and the earth and beneath the earth from that spot, his very personal presence right there. So they're bringing back the ark, and thereby bringing back the reign and rule of God. In verse 3, So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark on it, and Ohio was walking in front of it. So pause right here for a moment. When we are reading the Bible, we need to remember that we're reading ancient texts. So 2 Samuel is an ancient Hebrew text. And although we are well in like centuries in the wake of the Gutenberg press or, the, or basically the, the printing press, um, and we have all of these modern technologies that allow us to get information and books and the Amazon, like all of these things come. And so literature is readily accessible. It does not cost us much to produce content. But in this day, in this place, in this time, it was expensive. You're, you're thinking a stone tablet or you're thinking calf skin. And 
a scroll of part, like this is an expensive enterprise. And so you would be really economic in how you tell stories. And so what this does is the writers employ things to get our attention. That's why people and place names will help to tell the story and repetition. So when things show up, like new arcs twice in a pair, or new, um, not arcs, not new arcs, but new carts show up twice in a paragraph, we're to go, okay, what, what's going on here? See, the, this tool of repetition is at play because twice Uzzah and Ohio are guiding the ark on a new cart. And again, this might seem benign, but if you're a Hebrew person listening to this story being told, you would be scandalized because you know full and well from the law of Moses, it's called the Torah, the first five books, like the foundation stories of your people, that that's not how you treat the presence of God. So the ark is to be carried on poles that go through rings that are attached to the ark, and those are to be carried by only the Levitical priests. But what did they do? They have it on a new cart. Let's pick up in verse 5. David and all of Israel was celebrating with all their might before the Lord. It's beautiful. With castanets, harps, lyres, timbers, sistrums, and cymbals. And when they came to the flesh, threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark because the oxen stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, the place is called Perez Uzzah. Now this... Um, may seem like a dramatic shift and may cause many of us to recoil because this is the God that you and many have come to be frustrated with. Like, what do I do with this God? And we then pit the Old Testament God against the New Testament God, which is a false dichotomy. God is one. (laughs) So when Jesus comes on the scene, and the presence is with Jesus and the Father affirms, like this is the the picture of our beautiful Trinitarian community of love. Like they are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That same God is here. And yet we recoil nevertheless. And, And I think there's something that can help us here. Notice this language. Because of his irreverent act, God struck him down. See, Uzzah knows full well, but both that his touching and his carrying of the ark are off limits. They deliberately cut against the grain of God's commands. And they do so in the name of convenience. It's simply easier to carry the ark this way. And using the language of the Bible to describe this moment, it's clear that there is a lack of fear of the Lord on Uzzah's behalf. And the next verse actually captures this sentiment. We actually see this here in verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So it's interesting right there. It seems as though David feels stuck like, how are we going to get the ark to come if, if this is how we've, we're celebrating. There's great joy and gladness. The castanets, little baby symbols, we're just, we're so excited. Like, what's going on? How will the ark ever come to me? But do you see what precedes it? Fear. There it is. 
And so often we want to soften the fear of the Lord or the fear of God. So, so we call it something like reverence or awe. But I think, and, and this is not just a thing for back in the Bible or fundamentalist Christians. This is for us. Because what we've done today, especially this past year, is we've taken fear and we've weaponized it. We talk about people either wanting to gather or not gathering with the motivation of fear. Fear of a loss of one thing or another. And then we say things like, oh, you're just afraid. And so, so the appropriate thing is to have the appropriate fear for the appropriate thing. That is to fear God. See, fear is actually wired into who we are as human beings. It's like wired into our limbic system. And it's how in our bodies we respond to dangerous things. It, God has helped us to navigate the world through fear. And just think about this. Like when you're around something dangerous, there is a healthy fear. Uh, our community group, take this for example, is uh, starting to have more bonfires because spring just might be here. I, I'm still learning that there's like different types of spring in Iowa that maybe it could still snow. I, I don't know. I hope not. Oh, Lord, no more snow, please. Um, but bonfires, they're happening. And so there we are. And for our toddler, this is all new to him. It's very exciting. And, and yet when he looks at the fire, it's mesmerizing. It's almost like magnetic and it's beautiful. And what I'm having to teach him is a healthy fear because the fire is unforgiving. It is no respecter of persons. So I have to teach him to fear, not just revere, but to literally fear the fire lest he be burned. There is a healthy kind of fear. And how much more the God of the universe who spoke creation into being, who took dirt and breathed on it and life came from it. How, like, if, if we were to have a healthy fear of fire, how much more the God who created it? See, fear is not a bad thing. And this fear, this fear is absent from the Israel of David's day. And tell this story. And we pick this up in verse 10. Now, he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained there in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, we have no idea like what, what the blessing was. Was it agrarian in nature? Was it a, according to their customs? Was there children, crops? We don't know. But blessing came because God's presence was there. Now, King David, verse 12, was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because the ark of God. And so David, he wants to get in on this. And so he went up to get the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom and bring it to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord, and pay attention here, had taken six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. So just check this out. One, two, three, four, five, six. Stop. Build an altar. Get the fire. Kill the animals. And I, I'm not like a hunter or anything, but I, I know some in our community are. And like, um, that's no small thing. Burn them. 
as a, as a fragrant offering, as a beautiful scent to God to say you are the one who provides. And apparently they like have the, the uh, Ark of God thing down now. So the, the Levites pick it up again. One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, that's, that's far enough. Set it down. Altar, fire, animals. One, two, like, do you get, you get the point? Do you know how far it is from Obed-Edom's house to the house of David, the city of Jerusalem? It's like 10 miles. This is no ordinary box. And David knows it. Like, jump down to verse 17. Look, look at this arrival. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. So this is a precursor to the temple. This is the, the, the tabernacle. And there it is in the holy of holies, the, the hot spot of God's personal presence. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave, and notice the connection between blessing and giving because um, we who receive God's blessings are those who can extend in kind. So he receives the blessing. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites. Check this, both men and women doing social justice right there. And all the people went to their homes. See, we read all of this. We do this historical work because most scholars believe that this is the story that textures our psalm. This is the moment, this is the backdrop to which the people are singing. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift up your heads, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong. Like, this is the song. And they come in to the pace of one, two, three, four, five, six. Blessings upon blessings. So that's the history. What about the theology? Well, you know, uh, this is interesting. One of the first questions that I got when I came and started preaching regularly at Gateway, this is back in November of, of 2019, is why, why do we pray, come Holy Spirit? I've noticed that you, you say this often, maybe with connection to um, like the close of a teaching or um, before you read the scripture or, or in different moments. Why pray that? And the question, it was really sincere. And, and the conversation that ensued is like, because well, the, the spirit is here, like God is here. So why would we, are we like beckoning more? What is this? What's going on there? And to be clear, to, to pray this prayer, come Holy Spirit, this is not like a pietistic move. It's not to make a moment seem more holy or anything. It's not an incantation as though like we can rend our flesh or say the right words and make God's presence come. See, this is, um, it's an ancient prayer. This is called the, uh, the epiclesis. And th this is so connected. It's still seen in the Eastern Orthodox Church and many Catholic churches. It's connected to communion. And when the epiclesis is prayed, uh, the origins of it, church historians have, is that this would be the language that people would use when they came to the Lord's table. 
And in the Lord's table, it was not just a wafer and some wine or juice, but it was what you'd call the love feast. It was a whole meal that was a representative of, of the equality of the kingdom of God. So you would have um, free and slave, rich and poor coming together and breaking bread in the name of Jesus. And when that, that happened, the, the gathering of the saints around the table, there was something unique and distinct taking place such that like the felt presence of God was there. And these words, come Holy Spirit, seemed to be caught up in that. And as you go through church history, it's it's then made more explicit. It's built into liturgies and, and so on and so forth. But, but at its core, these words are for the church. He was looking to express that experience of God's presence in the Lord's Supper. And to, to be sure, like this is not a Catholic or a Protestant thing. This is a Christian thing. There was something about the table that marked the people of God in a way that no other meal or moment did. And theologically, this begins to be unpacked. And there are two kind of broad ways that God's presence then begins to be unpacked, namely the manifest presence and omnipresence. And, and that latter one we'll start with again. This may sound a bit technical and feel a little inaccessible, but really it's, it's pretty simple. Essentially, omnipresence means that there is nowhere that God is not. And when you rise in the morning and when you sleep, he's present. When you're in an aluminum tube flying through the sky or when you're in the depths of the sea, he is present. Think of the psalm, the whole earth is the Lord's and all therein. And under the framework of omnipresence, there is an obstacle that is there. And that obstacle is the lack of felt awareness. And what I mean by lack of felt awareness is this idea that if, if indeed God is everywhere, then the ones who are not there are us. See, we are the ones who are absent. It's said another way, and with the help of kind of the, the Christian contemplative tradition, what's missing is awareness. See, it's less that God is absent and more that we are because life comes at us in a million different ways a moment, and that's well before Wi-Fi and chasing small humans and work or school or whatever fills your day. See, there's lots to be distracted by. And in this place, we want to live what is true of us theologically, like not being lost in God like Hindus or anything like that. Like, like when we say what's true of um, Jesus is true of you, and then Paul picks up the language of inviting us to be in Christ or saying that is what's true of you when you give your allegiance to him, we actually want this in our lives, in our experience. And that's not like we're getting lost in God and losing ourselves. No, it's this language of union where in fact we find ourselves in God. And that comes through awareness, to showing up to the God who is present to us. And there's gonna be more on that this next week. But for now, just one example. Uh, religion scholar Martin Laird at Villanova in his work Into the Silent Land, uh, he has been so helpful for me as of late of like getting my mind around this because I'll, I'll just say this, um, I'm really bad at being silent. Some of you have experienced this. The words, they flow uh, and sometimes not for anyone's good. And the invitation that I've experienced in this season is to slow down, but I'm like, I don't know how to do this really well. And so this was recommended to me and it has been a gift. And Laird in this work, he calls our, our minds this um, wild hawk. 
that flitters to and fro. It's like we touch down and then we're off again soaring and it's just this And if that um, contemplative language, if you don't want to think of your mind as a wild hawk, then um, let me just set you at ease. Um, These practices, whether it's silence or solitude or Sabbath or anything like that, these simply just hold space for God to work. Uh, These are spaces where we show up to God and God to us. Um, And and so just running with this example of silence, um, I found this particularly beautiful. So Uh, with our wild hawks of minds, Laird says that silence is like the gloved hand that holds the wild hawk of the mind. I don't know if you've ever seen this, whether it's a falcon or a hawk, but there's this, the bird of prey comes and lands, perches on someone's hand, and then there's a a cord, a leather cord that gets wrapped and then gently held. So the bird is not being constrained, controlled, and certainly could fly away, but silence, like the gloved hand, holds it gently allows it to slow down long enough to show up to God. This is about bringing our awareness to the God who is already there, his omnipresence. But this doesn't quite get to the moments where we pray for healing and we see that, or we pray for breakthrough and it comes, or the moments where we've prayed for breakthrough and it doesn't come, or the healing doesn't happen, or even those moments where in worship through song, corporately, it's like God's, like, thick in the room and it's um, people are moved to conviction of sin and there's repentance and it's just this beautiful thing and tears and joy. Like, what is that? And then the next week there's nothing or the next month there's nothing and yet the, the cadence and rhythms of our lives are still like in the pursuit of God. There's no sin that we can readily see and yet what do we do? And for this, theologians begin to turn to this thing called manifest presence. And specifically, a little definition, these are times and places where God turns his face to you and to me. And Dr. Nick Drake, who is this charismatic Anglican, you can find his thesis online for free. I think it's like public domain. Um, you could just do Nick Drake. He talks about uh, as, wor- as um, worship through song is to charismatics as the sermon is to Protestants and uh, the mass is to Catholics. So he's building out this whole idea of like, what is worship? And he kind of riffs on this idea of manifest presence. And he says this, all through the era of the church, God is of course omnipresent, but there are also local times and places where God is at work in a manifest, tangible, intensified way. This is not about being more open to him or turning into what's already tuning into what's already gone going on it is his choice his momentum his openness to our particularity in this particular place in this particular time in other words the manifest presence of god appears to be the spirit's choice to actively join in the works and words of worship of the saints and our psalm psalm 24 helps to draw this out So, so go back there with me See, verses 1 and 2, that they are about omnipresence. The earth is the Lord's, everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas, established it on the waters. And then David transitions in verse 3 to talk about God's manifest presence. And we read this, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? This is a, a visual picture of the temple mount. So who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in the holy place? And just pause right here real quick. This is a rhetorical question. 
Everybody knows the answer. The high priest on the day of atonement. That's when the person, the one person can go into the holy place. But look at David's answer in verse four. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust an idol or swear by a false god. See, David is famous for living out union with God before Jesus. See, so often we take for granted that when we are joined to God, we are, um, Paul says, we are hidden with Christ in God. So Jesus says this, um, as I am with the Father and the Father in me, I want you to be in me. It's this idea of, so that as we are one, we may be one. See, Jesus is drawing us into union with the Trinitarian community of love we call God by the power of the Spirit. And David is famous for living that out before the advent of Christ. So David is like this advanced sign to to what awaits God's people. So it's not just the, the high priest or the king. No, it's anyone who stands with clean hands and a pure heart before God. They will stand in the holy place. And we actually see explicitly what that means in verse five. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him. And here's our line, who seek your face, God of Jacob. And the word here, seek, it's uh, this, the Hebrew word bequash. It's to seek, look for, ask for, call on, find, possess, want, pursue. And this word, it's spread throughout the library of scripture. You see it regularly in the Psalms, but there's this one place that captured my imagination. And I think because it like lines up with Jesus in this really beautiful way, and it's the prophet Jeremiah speaking on God's behalf to a people who are estranged from the land in exile, who are absent from the place where God's presence is, has these words to say, you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. Just let those words come for you. I don't know if that's you today that you've called on God, but but you feel like he's absent. Allow these words to just be like water to a parched soul. You will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. See, this seeking, it's not a partial effort or, or just like the spiritual part of you. No, it's at the very core of who you are. And then the New Testament picks up on this language. And it's, it's Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's saying that there's blessing that comes in this place for those who seek first the kingdom of God. And he says, all these will be added to you. See, one thing that's rather arresting for me as I've been like working through this teaching is that every time that this word shows up, the bequash, like it's a command. It's a command to seek after God, not with just part of who you are, but all of who you are. And he can be found there when God's people seek after God to find him with every fiber of their being. He is found by them. And yet even after all this, seeking God's face feels foreign. And so just consider this analogy as we kind of move towards a close. So over this course of this past year, I have been able, I've been really fortunate to be able to do most of my work at home where my wife Jess also works. 
And, and what this means is that we get all sorts of time together. So we wake up the boys together, there's lunch together, there's play, there's dinner prep, there's walks, there's more play, <laughs> bedtime, bath time for the boys. And, and you could call all of this time that we get to be together shoulder to shoulder time. And then comes that moment of silence. And so often it just feels like it is that one moment. <laughs> there comes that moment of silence. The kitchen is clean, breakfast is prepped. The boys are in bed and sleeping, praise be to God. And then one of us can say something like, hey, without all the noise, without all the clutter, without the next thing to do, we just say, hey, and that, that hey, or, or whatever you say to your partner, hey, hey love, or I don't, I don't know what that is, um, hey, it's this invitation to turn aside, quite literally to turn your face to one another, to be seen, to be heard, to be loved, to cultivate intimacy. And as clumsy as that analogy is, like where there is no intent, where there is no seeking, there will be no blessing. See, this past week I came across this quote that unpack this so well. This is A.W. Tozer in The Pursuit of God. He says, complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted. Too bad that many of us, that for many of us, he waits so long, so very long in vain. See, just as convenience was a stumbling block and a death for Uzzah, complacency stands as an opposition to us. And so all of this brings, brings us to one question, how? Like you may say, yes, like with every part of my being, I want to, to seek, I'll even say, yes, I'll seek the face of God, I'll tweet that out. But how? Like how do we pursue God's presence as a community following Jesus? How do we do this? And for that, I actually think we turn to two places that come together as one. Two traditions, really. There's the contemplative and the charismatic. And at first blush, these two traditions, the contemplative and the charismatic, they feel like oil and water. Uh, the contemplative often is seeking after peace and order and rhythm and silence and quiet and liturgy and the charismatic is spontaneous and passionate and vibrant and loud and, and in the moment and in their feelings. And the contemplative can feel a bit bookish and stuffy and attract those types. And the charismatic can, can be more about feeling in the moment. It's, it's people who, like Drake would say, you're all up in your feelings. Like this is, these are the people that come to those moments. So it's almost like they would never come together. And though like expression and temperament vary at their core, both contemplatives and charismatics really want the same thing. You see, their desire is for God's manifest presence. They're not satisfied, neither of them. They're just thinking nice thoughts about God. No, they want to experience him. They don't just want a theological framework. They want God's very self. They want to seek his face. And when left alone, I think that these spaces, they filter according to temperament because 
that's what we do. We, we start with our personality and our preferences. So if we're like a bit more introverted and quieter and reserved, we would probably find comfort and peace in contemplative settings. And if we're a bit more gregarious and extroverted and kind of demonstrative, like this guy here, um, then like you would find a home in a charismatic space. And our preferences are not a bad place to start. They are a bad place to finish because if we finish with our preferences, it's likely that we've moralized our preferences and um, in that place, well, they've become an ultimate thing and that's another teaching. The point and where we'll conclude is that as we come to Jesus with our personality in tow, and as Robert Mulholland points out, like to become people of love, we actually have to expand our capacity to interact with others in ways that feel unnatural and even uncomfortable. And so the invitation is to hold the tension of the two. What if we had space to be silent and to learn the unforced rhythms of grace that Jesus invites us into and with joy and gladness of the Davids of the world and our little castanets and our cymbals and our harps and our lyres to announce that the King is come? What if we could hold the tension of the two in love and be a community who learned to show up to God and to be a place where God wants to join the praises of his people. Not just in worship through song, but in the love of our neighbor and in hospitality. What if we were a community that was contemplative and charismatic because we want the manifest presence of God? What if we were a community that sought the face of God? The very simple thing I have for us is gateway. Let it be so. Let us seek the face of God. Let's pray. Jesus, may it be so. May you bind us to yourself in the power of your spirit. Lead us ever closer. Draw us near to you and to one another to be a community of love that seeks you in any and every season and sees in one another new and fresh ways to know your love. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.